As we go into this fall reading the Ten Commandments, I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And if you're bringing your Bible from home, you might just want to put a bookmark in there for the fall for Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. This morning we'll be focusing on the first commandment. But for a few weeks here, we're going to read all ten of them each time. The reason we'll do this is for repetition, to learn them well, to continue to put them on our minds and in our hearts, both morning and night, and also because the Ten Commandments are interrelated. Um, You can't get rid of one and not have it affect another. They all go together. Now, our sermon series title for this entire fall is Centered, and if you were here last week, I did not fire a bow and arrow, but it's a reminder that we are trying to live by the Ten Commandments, it puts us on target. It centers us. It centers our heart and soul and mind and strength on God and Christ's purposes for his kingdom to be built here. Now, concentric circles aren't necessarily a perfect analogy because every analogy breaks down. But for the first commandment this week especially, this is a foundational piece Because if this commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, if this one is misplaced or off-center, then the rest of them won't line up correctly. This is the first commandment for a reason. They build off of one another. And so this morning, we're going to spend special focus on getting the first commandment right, getting it centered. And no, I'm not wondering who might be sleeping and if they're in range or not. I'd have someone else to help me for that. But we're going to center ourselves. Now, one way that we're going to also just keep the, the words also in memory, if you want to learn a little bit of American Sign Language with me, we're going to do our best to learn a few words for each week, for each commandment. Now, this is not the complete sentence. This is not necessarily spoken well, but there's also a lot of grace extended um, from the Feeks, which I appreciate that. Um, but before we read God's Word, if you'll learn the motions with me, And you can do these while seated. I am the Lord. Now make an L for Lord and go across as if you're wearing a sash. So I am the Lord. And then plural, your, meaning you, your God. I am the Lord, your, oh, your God. See, it's hard. It takes practice. I am the Lord, your God who took you or brought you, um, you can do it with some gusto if you want when you're standing up, out of slavery. And I'm not going to try to sign Egypt because you need to know the alphabet and that's just hard to do. But who took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then this is the other part of the commandment, the positive and the negative. Other, so kind of make a fist with your thumb up. Other, it's kind of like, eh, you know, these other ones over here. Other gods? No. So this is, you're going to make an L again, and then you're going to put this hand up as if it were a tablet of the Ten Commandments, because this is law. It's like the Ten Commandments tablet with an L on it. But when it's no, when it's breaking the law, it's no. And so, other gods? No. No room for any other gods. Because if you try to bring another God into your life, if you try to center your life but there's other gods present, 
It's going to come up against the law, and it's going to bounce right off because we can't be centered if we're trying to worship any other gods because I am the Lord your God. Let's pray and then read God's word together. Lord, you have promised that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path and that the word of the Lord will not return void. Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us that we may hear your word, that we may engage it fully, that we may center ourselves with you and you alone as the Lord our God. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I grew up going to Sunday school and Wednesday night and going to church, um, evening and morning services both, and so there was lots of biblical wisdom um, given and imparted to me throughout all of those formative years, and I'm grateful for that. That's the primary source. There is also a secondary source of wisdom that I gained a lot from. Um, I would just say a, a, a body of literature that had such meaningful quotes as, Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. These are wise words spoken in episode 5 of Star Wars from Yoda. I also grew up with the the wisdom of Star Wars, uh, much to the chagrin of my father, who was a diehard Trekkie, but that's okay. I came back around eventually to that as well. But there's one thing that happened when I was young. They started remaking Star Wars movies, new ones that had never been seen before. And they weren't that good, but I enjoyed them anyway. 
But there's one quote that always stood out to me as I, as I kind of in my childhood and youth days looked to Star Wars for this great source of wisdom. And it came from episode one, which came out when I was in elementary school. And I was so excited. And it was the greatest movie I had ever seen until I got older. And then realized there were some flaws with it. But there was a, and we're not going to go down that road. But there was a line in that film where a master is telling a younger person, giving them some advice, and what he says is this, your focus determines your reality. Your focus determines your reality. Then he went on to say some things that I don't agree with, but that's the kind of thing we'll talk about in the adult Sunday school class. But your focus determines your reality. I actually think it is a very wise quote. And it it helps me frame how to understand the first commandment. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. Your focus determines your reality. It doesn't mean whatever you think is automatically true. It doesn't mean that you can't live in reality, that you can just pretend that things are different than they are. It does mean that where your attention is at, where your heart and mind go to, That focus that you give will determine how you see the world. It will affect your world view. Your focus does determine your reality. Here's maybe a way to understand that that many of us have experienced. Raise your hand if you've ever gone on a mission trip of any kind. Probably, I'm guessing, above 88% of us here have gone somewhere for some purpose. Do you ever do the exercise on those mission trips where where you do God sightings? Where at the end of the day or the end of the week, you talk about where have you seen God at work? And I think one of the things that's mind-blowing is when when we go places, when we do things, and we're looking for those God sightings, we see God showing up everywhere. And it's amazing. It's inspiring. And then sometimes we come back home, and we get back into the daily routine, back to the grind, and the God sightings seem to stop happening. It's like all of a sudden we, we don't see God at work in the same way. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, God is still just as much at work in your Monday through Friday, your week-to-week normal setting when you're at home, wherever you might be. God is just as much at work. But your focus has determined your reality. Sometimes when we get back, we get busy with the normal daily stress of life, and our focus on how God is at work fades. And the reality of how God is at work is still there and present and happening, but we don't see it because we're not focused on it. Your focus determines your reality, meaning if you're looking for God at work, you will probably find God at work. Now, There's ways in which that is and isn't true, and that's why the Ten Commandments continue to frame who God is and how we are to live in accordance to God's law. Because we can't always claim that everything we see happening, this is God at work. I always pick on the example of some friends from a particular university that was very charismatic, and their, uh, their lawnmower wasn't working, and no one could figure out why, and so they prayed for God's wisdom. And in that moment of prayer, someone had the idea to check the gas tank, and it was empty. Okay, God at work, um, but you could have just checked it beforehand. 
But your focus can still determine your reality, even with common sense. Can't we give thanks to God for the beauty of grass, for that smell of fresh-cut grass? Can't we see God at work in the trees, even as we mow around them, and to think that this tree reminds us of the words in Psalm 1, that the person who meditates on God's law both day and night is like a tree planted near streams of water. Can't our focus be on God in such a way that we do see God at work even in the everyday and the mundane tasks of life? And this is why the first commandment is so important because it's reminding us that we need to be focused in heart and soul and mind and strength on how God is at work, that the concentric circle at the very middle, the center of our existence, is who God is, that we see God, that we see this fulfillment of the law in accurate pictures around us, and that we focus and center ourselves, that we live in such a way that people see God at work in us. This is not for showing off, this is not for patting ourselves on the back, but it is for the witness that we have that we are centered, that we are aligned, that our life is on target in the way that God intends for us to live. And that's why there are more than ten laws. There's a whole book of law, too, really. There's lots of rules, but they start by being centered on God. Our focus needs to be on God if we want to live as people in the world who see a God who is real and who is really at work, that that reality is always there present. But other gods might come in the way of that. And then our focus will be elsewhere and the reality of God at work might be lost on us. Other gods exist. And now, I don't mean that, even though many of you know mythology is a hobby of mine, I don't mean that there's other real deities. But to use some of the words from Martin Luther, we're getting to some good John Calvin quotes eventually, but but Luther really nails this one. Luther describes what another God is. To have a God, lowercase g, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. This is Martin Luther in the Book of Concord teaching about the Ten Commandments. And what we mean by that is that another God is something else that we look to for help. It is something else that we orient our life around, that our life is centered around. Now, most of us would want to confess and profess that it is the Lord alone, the Lord who is our God. That's what we center our lives around. But the proof test for this is to look at your habits. How do your habits and the way you spend your time and what you center on reflect what your God really is? Now, in, in worship services, we have this thing called liturgy. It's why we start, words of the, we start with words of Scripture at the beginning of the service. We have a time of welcome and greeting with one another. We confess our sins, receive assurance of the law. We receive the word. We collect offering as a response given back to God. And we are blessed with a benediction. It's the liturgy. It's the flow of a service. It's a habit that is designed to intentionally center us on God. But that's on Sunday morning. What's the liturgy for the rest of your life? 
what is your daily habit and routine? How is your effort and energy spent and focused throughout the rest of the week? How does it compete with other things? We have busy lives and schedules. We have work. We have kids. We have things that need our time and attention and focus. But maybe an example just to ponder on is that morning liturgy, your morning routine. I, for one, do not enjoy mornings. I really don't. That 5.30 a.m. men's prayer breakfast is one of the best things I go to, and I hate setting my alarm for it every, every Tuesday night. But it's a great time. Come join us. 5.30 a.m., Big Apple Bagel, men's prayer breakfast. It's wonderful. But I don't enjoy mornings. I sometimes think I'd be a better Christian if I did, but I don't enjoy mornings. I do enjoy coffee a lot, especially in the morning. I also enjoy time with God, time of reading a passage of Scripture, time in prayer. But one thing that I'm present to in my own liturgy of life is that if my routine gets messed with, if, if maybe something happens that, that Caitlin or I are up all night with Ada, if I lose a lot of sleep or something gets messed up with my schedule, in the morning, I might lose out on my time with God, but I will still make my cup of coffee. The liturgy of my life points to me that I do rely on the power of caffeine a fair amount, and that that's one thing that won't be shaken out of my routine even if sometimes I'm disrupted and other things do get pushed to the side. I offer that, not in any kind of shame, but something I'm noting about how my own liturgy of life reflects my priorities. Now, I actually think that God enjoys when we enjoy good coffee. I still think one of the ways that God has shown that he loves us is that we have taste buds to enjoy good things. Coffee is good. It really is good. But coffee is not God. Consider how we even talk about things. Oh, I'm going to need an extra cup of coffee to get me through this day. What about, I need God to be with me to get me through this day? It raises the question in our liturgy of habit, how we live our daily lives, who or what am I relying on? What do I focus on for all of my strength? And this is why the Lord's rationale, the establishment of the Ten Commandments, is so interesting. Because God is not just sitting up there waiting for us to mess up so that he can be disappointed in us. That's an inaccurate picture of God. God describes himself as a helper, ever close at hand in times of distress. We've had some of those this week. And it is the Lord who is with us. God establishes his centered position in our lives by describing what he has already done for the people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God's rationale, the way he establishes his centeredness in our lives is by establishing that it is because of God that these people have been brought out of slavery into freedom to freely serve God instead of serving Egypt as slaves. God's centeredness is based on how God has already helped us. 
not coffee or anything else, but God. This is what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. Because before we did anything right to earn or deserve it, Jesus Christ died for us and took us out of slavery to sin. Jesus did that for us freely as a gift. And our response is to live with Christ at the center of our lives. These are the word, this is how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once again, not a group of people that God is looking down on being disappointed in, but God's special possession, dearly loved, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The same God who brought the people out of slavery and into freedom. Once, says Peter, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christ's centered point in our lives is based on what Christ has already done for us. The Lord's rationale for the centeredness around him is because he has already claimed us as his own. We are not earning our way to the center. Christ has already earned the rightful center of our lives on the cross, once and for all. Therefore, when I read Nehemiah chapter 8, this is when the people rediscover the law, and they realize how, how short they have come in being centered on God. But Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all on that day, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. The people were weeping because they realized they were off-center. But Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the Lord, for the joy of the Lord, is your strength. The people realize that they've messed up. And yet the rediscovery of the law, this recentering, Nehemiah refers to as a day set aside that is holy to the Lord and reminds the people that the joy of the Lord is their strength. Meaning they can go and enjoy good things. They can enjoy coffee and cookies. Thanks be to God for tasty treats. But it is the joy of the Lord that is their strength. It is in Christ's forgiveness that the people do not have to feel shame over rules broken, but an invitation and a joy in recentering their lives on God. It's getting the bullseye on track, and it's getting things rightly ordered, because there's lots of things in our lives that need time and attention. Our money needs time and attention and focus as a lot of the work of Atlas is doing exactly that kind of work. But it's getting all of that rightly ordered. Rightly ordered means heeding what Jesus said about two people cannot, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said that in Matthew 6 and Luke 16. You cannot serve both God and money because you can't have two gods. The law says no. And there's no other way to order your life with two gods at the center. But it needs our time and attention. But it needs to be rightly ordered. 
And it's a reminder that our help comes in the name of the Lord. Our help is from God, first and foremost. There's lots of other gods that people believed in in the ancient Near East when these words were written. There's lots of other things that take our focus off of center away from God today. For instance, we saw this in 1 and 2 Kings with Elijah and Elisha confronting the prophets of Baal. Why were the people worshiping Baal? Because Baal was the god of the storms and the people needed rain. And so you turn to the first thing that you think will offer you help. In that case, it was praying to the God that they thought would give them rain. But they forgot that it was God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It was God who was always supposed to be at the center and at the middle. And one thing that strikes me about that whole narrative of 1 and 2 Kings throughout our summer series was that the worship of Baal, this distraction to look at other gods, never actually went away in its entirety. It keeps showing up. In the same way, we will always be tempted to have other gods. We will always have things that will try to take our life and attention off center of Christ. And that's why reciting, remembering, putting the Ten Commandments in our hearts helps keep us centered so that we are not taken away, that we are not distracted. What do you worship? This might be a question that's worth asking someone who knows you well. Maybe you can think about it on your own some, but also to ask someone that you trust, what do you see that I worship? What is my priorities and how I speak and how I act and and what I do? What does it reflect on how I worship? Not just Sunday morning, but throughout the whole week. This is once again something to engage with the intent of finding a centered life to find maybe the areas that we turn towards something else for help instead of turning to God first and foremost. What do you worship? If you ask someone else this week as you reflect on your own habits, and if you do, maybe ask a a trusted friend or a spouse or a relative or a co-worker, make sure it's someone you trust because you're asking them, what do I worship? I invite you to think of it with the framework of uh, knowing that you're giving someone permission to call it like they see it. They don't actually get to tell it like it is. I make that distinction. To tell it like it is means that you're omniscient. It means that you know everything that is. For someone to tell it like it is, they know everything that is. Your invitation is to ask someone else to call it like they see it. Because they don't know everything about you. They don't know every thought that is in your mind, every burden that is on your heart. But they can call it like they see it. And there might be something of holding up a mirror through a friend to know what do I worship. Maybe it'll reveal something that brings us off center that we can confront and realize and put ourselves centered once again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Other gods? No. Just me. And me alone. This is the foundational commandment to see what other gods might be at play and an invitation to center ourselves 
to focus so that all of the other priorities, everything else in life that we need to do, all of the things that take our time and attention, from money and work to family and friends, all of these things can be rightly ordered, starting with what is at the center. What do you worship? What do you worship? May we always be growing in our centeredness to worship the Lord and the Lord alone. Amen. Let's pray.